0: I'm going to be in Psalm 86 again this morning. We were there last week, and I just felt like this, this Psalm, this prayer of David is so powerful that we need to be back in it. Last week, we focused on one particular petition of David, and that was in verse four, gladden the soul of your servant. And if you weren't here and weren't able to hear it, and I don't say this very often, I want you to go listen to it because I think it's so important that we see who it is God's called us to be. And gladness of soul, joy in the life of a believer is normative. That's the golden opportunity for us now as the church. That in the midst of so much chaos, so much conflict, so much darkness. We who have Christ in us should be radiating that light. But so often it's not the case. We as believers don't really look glad of heart. We don't look that joyful. And this isn't a false joy. This is the deep joy that comes from an abiding trust in the living God. Psalm 86, 17 verses. Listen as I read, particularly for the character of God and David's communion with God. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of have shield. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Derek Kidner calls Psalm 86 uh, a lonely prayer. He says, it's a lonely prayer in more ways than one. One, it's the only prayer of David in the third book of the Psalms. But you can sense that David is crying out that he is alone, but are yet not alone. You ever feel that way? I wonder, even this morning, what has kept you up this week? When you woke up in the middle of the night, what caused your heart to hurt, your mind to begin to spin? Maybe it's something about a child and the first couple of weeks of school are starting and things aren't going well. There's challenges before you. Maybe you're laying in bed and you're thinking of the one laying next to you, your spouse, and you wonder about your relationship. Maybe the distance that's between you or the things that you know are keeping him in a place of anxiety and fear or your wife in a place of anxiety and fear. Maybe you're laying in bed wondering if there'll ever be anyone to lay next to you. That singleness is hard and that you long for that person that God would provide, but it hasn't happened. Maybe you're anticipating a meeting that's going to be later that day or one you came from earlier in the day. Maybe it's your bank statement or maybe it's a secret Maybe there's just something you have that not even the person next to you knows about. Maybe it's something pretty shameful and you feel alone. Maybe it's a conflict deep inside with another person. I don't know what it is, but I know as a human in a fallen world, there are so many things that are continually waging war against our souls. And so often we're not willing to share those, even with God. Or when we do share them with God, it's still as if we're trying to clean ourselves up or hustle God one way or another. What we need is to see prayers of poor and needy people like David, who in their desperation are crying out to the one true God, finding in him the character that they need, the confidence that they have, the courage that they need in order to experience the peace that he promises. None of us are immune to it. And for many, and this is important, the peace doesn't come very often, maybe even if ever. And sometimes it's because we simply have only treated God, Christianity, Christ, our King, the Holy Spirit, as an idea or an argument. Or a worldview. Christianity is a worldview. But in that worldview, it's so much more than just arguments to win a debate and a cultural war. It is the truth of a relationship with the living God, where the living God, the one true living God, is inside you. And David, when he's praying to the Lord, he finally, near the end of the prayer, gets real specific about what's wrong. And he says, ruthless people are pursuing me. They want to kill me. Chances are you are or will experience relationships where there are people that are hostile after you. They're probably not holding muskets and spears, but they might have power to inflict pain on you. Where do you turn? David's situation many times was different. It really was spears. It really was stones. It really was the desire to see him killed. And when he found himself Self. in this situation, he would cry to the Lord, and he would find himself in a place of courage. So where did the courage come from? Two things I want to focus on. First is the character of God, and secondly, his communion with God. Look with me at verse one. As I said last week, David does something really interesting in a psalm. He describes who he is, poor and needy. He s- describes who God is, and has a long list of the attributes of God. We're going to look at a couple. He then is specific about his relationship with God, the union that exists. And then he lists 15 petitions in 17 verses. Last week, we focused on verse 4, gladden the soul of your servant, and verse 11, teach me your way. This morning, I want to focus on God's character and upon David's communion with God. God's character, look with me at verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Children, most of you have prayed a prayer like this as we prayed as children when we were little, especially if someone asked us to pray for the meal. It went something like this God is good, God is great. Let's just stop there. In the middle of the night, whether you're little or old, whether you're suffering a small or large whether it is short or it's the sustained suffering that's a powerful prayer god is good and god is great his character is defined by those two terms in perfection david in verse 5 says it for you o lord are good friends i want you to think for a moment about meditation meditation is biblical Meditation is nothing more than repeating something over and over. If you don't know how to meditate, ask yourself if you know how to worry. If you know how to worry in the middle of the night, you know how to meditate because that's what you're doing. Something needs to break the cycle of the meditation you're in that says, what if, what if, what if? And something that breaks it is the power of the spirit and the word. A simple statement of God is good and God is great. God is good, infinitely good, perfectly good all the time. David says, for you are Lord are good. And then he highlights some of his goodness by saying you are forgiving and you are abounding in steadfast love. God's love is a gift and it's a good gift. Three times David mentions his steadfast love, his love for him. God is good in forgiving us of our sins. He's also good, and David says, You listen to my pleas for grace. Verse seven In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. In God's goodness, he promises to answer our prayers. Sometimes his answer is yes, specific. Sometimes it's wait, and sometimes it's no, which is also specific. And sometimes when God says no, it can be heart-wrenching. Yesterday, 10 o'clock, me and my wife, my family, we got a no. And it would be a small thing compared to some, but it was a big thing compared to us. But it was a very clear no. And on our knees over the last few days, we've been praying for this. And the answer was no. And what do you do with no? You meditate. And you can either meditate on what you can't understand in terms of the reasons as to why, Or you can say, but I know you're still good. I know you're still great. This is what David was doing. Sometimes the answer is no, friends. Sometimes it's wait. Sometimes it is yes. In all three places, with all three answers, God is still who he says he is. Psalm 119, the Lord is good and does good. Even when we can't see it as good, that must break the meditation of anxiety. Secondly, David focuses not just on the goodness of God, his forgiveness, his love, his mercy, his answer of prayers. He focuses on the greatness of God. Look with me at verse 10. David says, for you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Well, that's the second part. God is good. God is great. There's no one like God's greatness. Do you know why you wake up in the middle of the night and your mind can't stop? because you're thinking about things that you don't have the power in and of yourself to change. You can't change a person. You can't change the person laying next to you. You can't change the children you gave birth to. You can't change them. You can do certain things to control to a point. When you have a new news of someone who's suffering an illness and you don't know what it is yet, the doctors aren't certain yet either, you wonder. And your mind goes, doesn't it? Mind does but there's a great God, one true God. And one of the ways you can praise God and rest in his attributes is to know that there's nothing God can ever learn in his greatness. He is omniscient. There's nothing he can learn about you, about your aging parents about your current job or future job. There's nothing he can learn about your child, whether they're going into kindergarten or about to finish college. There's nothing he can learn about anything. He's omniscient, that's how great he is. God's power, he has the power to do whatever he wills to accomplish what he believes is good. His power is not measurable. All other forms of power in this world are measurable. Even a hurricane that's bearing down in the Gulf, it's measured by a category. God's power is immeasurable. We will never exhaust understanding the greatness of God for all eternity. That's who it is that we're praying to, who it is that David's praying to. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. And he's omnipresent. He's with David as he's praying, everywhere present, David, near the end of his prayer, begins to speak about insolent men who have risen up against him, a band of ruthless men who seek his life. Earlier this summer, asking the Lord to lead me with what he wanted me to study personally, how he sought to encourage my life, I felt a deep need to read people who were dead. I felt the deep need to go to a generation or even centuries before to read about how people handled plagues, how people handled conflict outside the church, inside the church, how they persevered in the midst of real suffering because Christ told us suffering will be part of our life. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. Years ago, John Piper, Pastor John Piper, Bethlehem Baptist, he's preached here before, wrote a series of books called The Swans Are Not Silent. There were seven books written. Each one had three biographies. They were surveys. Outstanding. Well, I noticed in our bookstore that he had put them in one collection, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. And Amy, who runs our bookstore, knows we're going to get more of these copies. This is a fantastic book. You don't have to read it cover to cover, but you could. It's that good, it goes so so, well, so inspiring. At the beginning of one of the biographies, this one's about Charles Simeon, I'm not going to speak about him much, I'm going to speak about John Patton in a minute, but I want you to listen to what he says about the church, and this was written in the late 1990s. Here's what he writes. What I have found is a great power for perseverance, in keeping before me the life of a person who surmounted great obstacles in obedience to God's call by the power of God's grace. I need the inspiration from another century because I know that I am in great measure a child of my times. We all are. And if you like to read, I'm sure many of you do, you need to be reading people that aren't alive writing day alone. You need to go back, and you need to read of others who persevered through sufferings that were so great, and they did not lose hope. He said, one of the pervasive marks of our time, and this is about 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago. One of the pervasive marks of our time is emotional fragility. It hangs in the air we breathe. We are easily hurt, we pout and mope easily, we blame easily, we break easily, we criticize easily. Our faith breaks easily, our happiness breaks easily, and our commitment to the church breaks easily. We are easily disheartened, and it's true. Now I wanna be careful. There is mental illness. Depression is real, anxiety is real. There are all sorts of things that wage war physically against the mind and the body, but there is more than that. It's a current. It's a toxic air of anxiety that is consuming us. It's overwhelming us. And as it overwhelms us, it's easier than not to be overwhelmed by the one that we should be overwhelmed by. Piper writes on, when historians list the character traits of America in the last third of the 20th century, commitment... Constancy, tenacity, endurance, patience, resolve, and perseverance will not be on that list. The list will begin with an all consuming interest in self. Some of you said it, you knew it was coming. An all consuming interest in self. What do I like? What's my preference? Do I like this? Change the channel. The list will begin with an all consuming interest in self, self esteem followed by subheadings of self-assertiveness, self-enhancement, and self-realization. And if we think we are not children of our times, let us simply test ourselves to see how we respond when people reject our ideas. Do you see any of that happening right now? People reject our ideas, our views, or they spurn our good efforts or misconstrue our best intentions. We all need help. We are surrounded by and are part of a society of emotionally fragile people. The spirit of the age is too much in us. We need to spend time with the kind of people, whether dead or alive, whose lives prove there is another way to live. There is another way to live. There is a way to live where the normative Christian is a life full of joy, even in the midst of suffering, where there is a confidence that you have even when God says no, where you don't have to deny the pain of the no, but you still have the ability to say, I trust him no matter what. One of the individuals that I've spent a lot of time with is a man named John Patton. John Patton was a missionary from Scotland Reading this brief biography led me to his whole autobiography, which is incredible. We have it in the bookstore. Maybe not because of last hour, but we have it down there and we'll have it down there. <laughs> John Patton was an inner city missionary in Scotland. He had a fantastic ministry that was taking place, but he had a heart. It's, we must too, because the Great Commission isn't over, to see the gospel taken to places where it's not yet been in print, where the Bible doesn't exist. He had a heart to go to the South Pacific Islands, to the New Hebrides Islands, where no one had gone except for 19 years before. This is the early 1900s, around the 1830s. 18, 1800s, not 1900s. James Williams... John Harris, November 20th, 1839, are the first recorded missionaries to land on these islands. Within hours of them landing there, the savages of these islands murdered them, cooked them, and ate them in front of those on the ship. The ship left. 19 years later, This man, John Patton, who has a ministry that's thriving, hundreds of people, it's what we would call urban missions, hundreds of people are coming to the Lord, felt led to go. As he goes, he experiences the conflict. The conflict begins inside the church. Mr. Dixon, one of the elders, begins to explode. The cannibals, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. The memory of Williams and Harris is too great. I want you to listen to the way John Patton responded. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus... It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection body, it will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. John Piper says that's called spiritual moxie. He believed it, he wasn't seeking to be cute. He knew that in order for the Lord's great commission to be accomplished, somebody had to take the word of God to the cannibals, to the savages. This was 200 years ago. If in God's perfect sovereign timing, it will be 200 or more years before every tribe, tongue, and nation has received the word of God, Well, who are we going to be writing about? Who in here has children where you're ready to say, go, go wherever the Lord's calling you, even if it's dangerous for the sake of advancing the kingdom? Does that matter to us? Or are we so distracted by so many other things right now that that primary calling, that primary calling to go is lost? Our energies are spent in so many other anxieties. Friends, it can't be. We cannot miss this opportunity. It's so golden for us to be reminded of what is essential and to go forth and make the name known. You don't have to go all the way to another island. There are plenty of people living right next door, working right next to you, sitting on planes, sitting in parks, sacking your groceries, who need to hear the good news of Christ. Patton arrived within a few months. His new wife, they're in their early thirties, died. She'd given birth on the island to one child who died a week or so after she died. And now this man is left there alone. Patton experienced the incredible fear of the savages continually wanting to kill him. Like David, ruthless men, a band of ruthless men sought his life. In one moment, hundreds had gathered around him. He was with one other man who had come to Christ, a native to the land, a former savage who was now transformed by Christ. His name was Abraham. He and Abraham, it says, we're surrounded. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. Did you hear that? I realized I was immortal. I'm bulletproof until my master's work with me is done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket, and they had muskets because the Britons had brought them in trading, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power. In heaven and on earth, he rules all. He believed in the greatness of God, not just statements about it, not just a worldview about it. He believed. David did too. And that character wasn't just a statement about goodness and greatness, it was a union that existed, this communion that he had with God. That is what gave David the courage. To Trust God with whatever would come his way, the same was true for Patton, and one of the final moments in his life on that island before he came back to Scotland and then went back for his second tour, he has been told by a chief that the only way he could survive was if he climbed up a tree, he told him which tree, and the chief said i 'll protect you but." All of these chiefs were fickle. Again, hundreds of savages had chased him to this point. Now he is alone. Abraham isn't there. And he climbs up into this tree. Listen to what he says. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Can you imagine? Savages yelling, muskets firing all pointing towards you alone, yet not alone. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge. This is really powerful. I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my savior's spiritual presence to enjoy his consoling fellowship. In other words, I would gladly go back to that tree again if I could experience the same soothing presence of my Savior. And then in his autobiography, he throws a question to the reader, and I'm throwing it to you. If thus you, thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend, capital F, R-I-N-D, have you a friend that will not fill you then? If Jesus is just an idea to you or an argument or nothing more than a worldview, I think this kind of suffering May truly be too much for you, but if you truly believe, are in union with Christ, have this saving relationship with Jesus, where He is everything, friend, you, even in the midst of such horror in a tree like that, can endure anything that the Lord permits and His sovereign goodness to come your way, anything. Decades ago, centuries ago, thousands of years ago, people who have followed Christ have died under horrific circumstances. They had climbed a tree too. What gives them hope and what gives me hope is the one who is the friend the one who himself was put on a tree, who died the most horrific death known to man, taking on all the sin of the world, every sin of his children, yours and mine, crying out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never have to pray that prayer or feel that reality. Do you know that friend? Not just about him. Do you know him? Today, he's offering himself to you. If you've received Christ in the past, celebrate the wonder of what that means. And if today is the day of your salvation, friend, cry out to the Lord. You are safe in his arms. And tell me, are someone you sense that's around you that believes this? and begin now to follow your living head, your king, your savior, your redeemer, Jesus. Father, until that word is proclaimed to all the nations, you are not going to return. We thank you for the people that you've brought into our life to proclaim it. We thank you for the ones even present today who have been used by you to take this message everywhere. Father, we're going to close in two beautiful pieces of music, one that's not very old and one that was written by a woman born in the 1600s. And God, the echo of that cry is so powerful for us in this moment where it's very easy to just live meditating upon one anxiety after another, as opposed to surrendering to the God whose word tells us over and over again, he is good and he is great. Bless us, Lord, even now as we sing, cause these words, your word, your holy scriptures to soak deep into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.